All right, everybody. So if you have uh, your Bible, open and find the book of Exodus. This morning, we're going to be thinking about the first two chapters of the book. I hope you've had a chance to read them ahead of time. Please, please get into that habit um, because, and you know what I'm about to say, you will always get more out of it if you do. And especially when we are studying through a book in this fashion, it's almost like we did with the Minor Prophets a couple of summers ago, if you were here for that, where we, we were covering an, an entire book of the Bible every single week. There's no way that I can read that out loud or you can, you know, we can talk about every verse in a Sunday morning, so in a similar way, we're going to be covering large chunks. There's 40 chapters in Exodus. We're covering large chunks every week. There's no way we can read it all. So it would help you immensely if you've read it in its entirety before you come. Um, yeah, so hope you've done that with chapters 1 and 2. Last week, we tried to get an overview of the book. Um, not anywhere near sufficient to... Um, preview everything in the book, but hopefully, hopefully sufficient to at least help give you an idea of the importance of the book of Exodus to the storyline of the Old Testament, um, the, to see the emphasis and the aim of the providence of God in the book. Like, what is God up to in, in the book of Exodus? And we saw two things in particular in, in, in two broad ideological or theological divisions of the book. In chapters 1 through 15, God's main providential aim is to display His glory to all the nations, to display His glory over Pharaoh. I will get glory over Pharaoh. I will get glory over the gods of Egypt. And then the second providential aim in the latter part of the book, chapter 16 all the way to chapter 40, is to manifest His abiding presence with His people. How that would come about. How that could happen. Last week in that, in that overview, we also looked at the, the, the significance of this pattern of Exodus that is not just here in the book of Exodus, that you see small patterns of Exodus even in the book of Genesis, in the life of Abraham. Uh, you see it in the life of Lot. You see it in just over and over again, little episodes of tiny Exoduses. This book is just the, the most prominent example of a of, of a big one, but you see it later in the, in the Old Testament, like in Joshua, you have this recapitulation of Exodus over and over again, this pattern that is important um, throughout Scripture, the point of which is, as we saw last week, in the purpose of Exodus and all those other little ones, was to point us beyond themselves to a greater, bigger, more eternal Exodus to come. We saw it was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We saw the New Testament explicitly links that idea with the work of Jesus. We looked at, the, at Luke chapter 9 and the, the story of the transfiguration, how there's so many overt allusions in Jesus' transfiguration to the book of Exodus. And it even literally says that Moses and Elijah were talking about the Exodus that Jesus was about to accomplish when he goes to Jerusalem which means when he goes to the cross. If you missed any of that and want to catch up, you can find that overview on our podcast. I encourage you to give it a listen just so if you're going to be here, you have sort of an awareness of, the, of what I was trying to bring emphasis to, and it'll help you as we move through the book. 
As I said, we're going to look at chapters 1 and 2 today, which are, to say what will eventually sound like a broken record, rich. And not just for history's sake. It is history. It's recorded history. Uh, some some, some um, uh, skeptical historians have been skeptical about the history of Exodus because they say, well, you can look back on ancient Egyptian records. And you don't find any mention of Moses or any mention of this Exodus. <laughs> Okay, fine. But you can also look back on ancient, and, and almost without fail, these ancient powers tend to omit very embarrassing defeats in their, in their histories. They want to they talk about the victory. So Exodus is, is, is very clearly, even in the way it's written, just very intentional uh, recorded history. But it's, and it's fascinating for that alone. But, but also, not just for history's sake, but theologically. Um, to teach us about God, to teach about us about who He is and what He is like and about His will, to teach us about ourselves and the world around us and, and, and most importantly, about the gospel, about our need for the gospel, about the Savior who was to come. And, uh, and that is to bring up this point, that we... We read, we are, here we are, Christians in 2022. And, and that's just a reminder that we read all of this as, Christian, uh, as a Christian book. What I mean by that is the Old Testament is not just about Israel. It's, it's about Jesus. And that's what I want us to, to become ingrained in in this study. How do we know that? Why do we believe that? Because Jesus himself said that. After his resurrection twice, Jesus took them to the law, the prophets, the writings, and showed them all the things concerning himself, all the things written about him in all the Old Testament. And so um, as we read through these scriptures, we're not just reading history, which it is history, but we're reading actual history that God was sovereignly orchestrating to prepare us for the gospel to prepare us for Jesus come, to come, which is a reason for us never to read this book or any other Old Testament book superficially, as if you're just reading what happened, right? Always, as you read what happened, ask the question, how does this point me forward to? How does this promise me? How does this prepare me for Christ? Because that's why it happened. Um, and again, since we're covering two chapters this morning, we don't have time to read both, um, but to read just a portion of what we'll study today, and you hopefully haven't, having read the whole on your own, let's just read a portion from chapter 2. If you found that, follow along as I read verses 1 through 10. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, uh, you have echoes of, uh, the, the King James says, a goodly child, goodly. But it, even in that, you hear even better the echoes of Genesis. She saw that it was good, right? Uh, a fine child, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes or, or uh uh, papyrus reeds and daubed it with bitumen and pitch and she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds 
by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. And so the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your, uh, the child's, uh, I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. Let's pray. Lord, uh, what we just read, what all these events in chapters 1 and 2 and all the passages later in the scriptures that we're going to make reference to, everything is we confess our faith to you in prayer. It is your holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word to us. And um, Lord, we ask for your help, it being your word. We don't come presumptively to it. We come needy to it, needing your help. So please give us eyes to see the truth. Give us minds to understand it. Please give us hearts to embrace it. Give us wills to obey it, whatever it is you have us to do. And Lord, give me the help that I need to teach. Please give us all ears to hear. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, hopefully you already know, even though we just read the first 10 verses of chapter 2, you kind of are familiar with the flow of both of these first two chapters. Chapter 1 begins in the first few verses linking the end of Genesis to the beginning of Exodus uh, in, in how it explains how the family of Jacob through Joseph even came to be in Egypt in the first place. And at the end of Genesis, this tells us in these early verses, they, they were about 70 people. Which I said then last week, they were more of a family than a nation at that point. Um, 70 people in all. Well, this explains how they went from 70 people and became a multitude of people uh, by the beginning of Exodus. And how they went from being a favored people under Joseph to being a despised and oppressed people under a new Pharaoh. These first two, two chapters describe, or chapter 1 describes, how, uh, how that oppression uh, came, in, how it came in the form of brutal slavery of the people under Pharaoh and also through the wicked uh, edict he gave paranoid being so paranoid that he became fearful of the of the growing population of the people he gave the wicked uh, edict for all of the newborn Hebrew infant boys to be murdered um, at birth chapter 2 we just read or when you have this great uh, little at the end of chapter 1 this great defiance of the Hebrew midwives that we'll make reference to. Um, they're ballers. That's awesome. Um, chapter 2, then, which we just read, describes the birth of Moses um, through the, 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 the um, 
work of his mom and his sister, his miraculous escape from that murderous edict of Pharaoh. Um, then after, after this that we just read in chapter 2, it'll, it will describe his uh, providential rise in prominence in Egypt um, as, the, as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. But then by the end of um, the, the second half of chapter 2, which we did not read, it, uh, it, it talks about his transition from being a favored son of Pharaoh's daughter to being a despised son of Egypt because he went so far as to murder an Egyptian man when he saw that Egyptian man abusing one of his people, one of the Israelites. Um, he buried that Egyptian in the sand that he killed, and he was found out, and he was driven out into the wilderness at the end of chapter 2, the wilderness of Midian, where he would spend 40 years um, before. And it, this would be the place where God would begin his providential uh, means in his life to, to uh set Moses apart to be the instrumental redeemer of Egypt out of slavery, uh, of, of, of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. It begins in the next chapter with his encounter with God at the burning bush. The story on its surface is a fascinating story. Uh, certainly you could comb it for lessons about human nature. For example, like I just mentioned, the paranoia of, of Pharaoh and the lengths that he went because of that paranoia. You could, you could comb this about lessons about ethical situations or thinking about, for example, uh, Moses' mother defying the law of the land and hiding her son in the, in the reeds by the riverbank or, or the, the, the Hebrew midwives deceiving, mockingly deceiving uh, Pharaoh and not doing what he had ordered them to do or Moses committing murder, yes, but out of love for and trying to protect one of his people. There's all kind of ethical things you could think about in these two chapters. And without question, those things are good and it's good to think through. But to spend your time entirely on issues like that would be akin to spending your day entirely exploring side streets and missing altogether Main Street. Um, so this morning, I want us to try to capture as much as we can in these two chapters by focusing on four main characters uh, of the story, and what scripture presents each one of those characters as pictures of, okay? Um, I'll try to explain what I mean by that as we come to each one. So if you're taking notes, specifically the four characters that I want to highlight here and what scripture presents them as pictures of are these. The first one is I want us to look at Egypt. I know it's not a person, but it's a place of prominent thing in the, in the story, Egypt itself, and how Scripture presents it as a picture of Sheol, S-H-E-O-L, Sheol, which, which uh, Sheol being the Old Testament Hebrew word for the place of the dead, um, where the dead go when they die. Egypt is a picture of Sheol. Secondly, we'll look at Pharaoh, and I want us to notice how uh, Pharaoh is presented to us in Scripture as a picture of the serpent. A picture of the serpent. This is, uh, you know, Pharaoh is presented to us here not just as a wicked king, as a wicked ruler, but in a very real sense as an incarnation of the work of Satan himself in the world to oppose the purposes of God, to oppose the people of God. Third, we're going to look at Moses, of course. He's the third uh, 
character here, and he will be presented as a picture of the Savior. This is the most interesting aspect of these chapters, how, how and I hope you'll see this clearly when, as I try to explain it to you, how Moses' experiences in these chapters are presented to us as a forerunner in his own life, a forerunner of the very same things that God is going to accomplish through him on behalf of all the people of Israel years down the road um, in bringing about the, the, the big exodus out of Egypt. I'll try to make that clear when I get there. Finally, fourthly and finally, we're going to look at God, <laughs> a picture of sovereignty. God, and, and it, this is where we don't need to forget the aim and purpose of God in chapters 1 through 15, which is to make his glory known and make his glory displayed for all the nations to see over Pharaoh, over all the gods of Egypt. So that's what I want us to see. So let's think about these different pictures a little more in depth and consider first how Egypt is a picture of Sheol and why that is significant. If you just started reading the book at the beginning, you see how in the, the book opens in the early verses of chapter 1, reminding us of how the people of Israel came to be in Egypt in the first place. It was through the family of Jacob and Joseph in particular that 70 people in total came into Egypt due to famine in the land uh, where Joseph was already through um, his brothers selling him into slavery and God providentially doing... You can read all of that in, in Genesis. And, and while... This is all well and good. And for example, you look at verse 7, it describes that time as a time of blessing and fruitfulness. It says in verse 7, the people of Israel were fruitful and they increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Blessing, blessing, blessing. The Bible, however, never leads us to believe that Egypt would be a place of blessing for the people. In fact, the scriptures go to great pains to present Egypt not just as an oppressive place against the people of God, but as a place representing death itself and, and the curse of exile away from God. How does, how does that happen? How does scripture do that? Well, just to be clear, <clears throat> um, even outside of scripture, just a general knowledge of ancient history, would lead you to believe this because ancient Egypt sort of made death their expertise. I mean, it's the thing that they're most remembered for still to this day. Uh, they were being famous. Ancient Egypt was famous for mummification, right? And, and famous for pyramids, which were what? Elaborate tombs for the dead. Still standing this day. You ask a little kindergartner, what do you know about ancient Egypt? Mummies and pyramids, right? Death is their legacy. Um, and Scripture itself reminds us of this fact, and it reinforces that association in our minds. Just Even before you get to, to Exodus, just consider a couple of examples in the book of Genesis. Um, think about the famous story in Genesis chapter 37 when Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery, and of course, where are they going? They go into Egypt, but that, that, that caravan of Ishmaelites who pick him up and carry him into Egypt, what else were they carrying? Genesis thirty-seven twenty-five says that they were bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. They're carrying funerary supplies. They're carrying embalming supplies. 
and, and, and mummification of the dead. They, 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 and they were going down to Egypt. We're told at the end of, if you just, even if you just flipped over one page, you might see Genesis 50. And when they're, in, when they're in Egypt and Jacob dies, they embalm him. They take 40 days to embalm Jacob. And then they mourn for him for, and weep for him for 70 days on that. Ancient Egypt, like I said, is just a place that actually still to this day where the first two things that come to people's minds when they think about ancient Egypt are pyramids, elaborate graves, and mummies, the dead. Right, But to further deepen in Exodus that association with Egypt being the place of the dead, think about this first section of Exodus, chapters 1 to 15, where God is going to display his, his glory over all the nations. That first section, chapters 1 to 15, is bookended by water. By water. On the front end, it's the Nile. On the back end, it's the Red Sea, the waters of the Red Sea. And in Exodus, both of those bodies of water are associated with death. Um, the Nile with the death of untold thousands of Hebrew babies. Uh, the Red Sea with the death of untold thousands of Pharaoh's army. Right? And throughout the Scriptures, not just in Exodus, throughout Scriptures, waters are often associated with death. Think about Genesis. Think about the flood. The flood is, are the waters of death. Or consider the story of Jonah later in the Old Testament. And on that note, Jonah goes so far as to compare the waters he went into as Sheol. Let me just give you an example. Here's um, uh, Jonah chapter 2. You can write this down or you can turn to it. Jonah chapter 2. Um, verses 2 through 9. This is what Jonah says. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me, out of the belly of Sheol I cried. And he's there in the water. Um, and you heard my voice. You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. The flood surrounded me. Sheol. Right? And all your waves and your billows passed over me. And then I said, I'm driven away from your sight. You see, that even that is, even describing it as Sheol is describing it as a place of being separated from God. I'm driven away from your sight. Yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head and the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. The waters were the pit of, of separation from God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. You pay regard, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but with the voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And you... So the, the, the waters that bookend this whole first section just are associated with death and a place of curse and separation from God. And just consider the language. It's not... Sometimes you have language in the Bible that means more than just one thing. It's like when Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. Sure, it was the time of day. It also represented the darkness of his own soul. In a similar way, this is not just a geographical feature when it constantly says people go down to Egypt. 
they descend into Egypt, right? That caravan in, G in Genesis 37 was going down to Egypt, descending there. And as we enter the story of Exodus, therefore, we're not just being told historical information and the geographical location of the people of God. It is meant to be associated, a place associated with death and curse and exile and separation from God under His heavy hand. And immediately we see another link here um, to something we said last week. The nations are presented here as being content in that place. And they're trying to find permanence in that place because what does Pharaoh force the enslaved Israelites to build for him in chapter 1? In chapter 1, verse 11, it says that he oppressively tasked them with building cities for him. Cities for him. And not just any kind of cities. Store cities. Seeking permanence and security in that place. That echoes, I said, if you were here last week, that echoes what we said about Cain, the son of Adam and Eve. When, when after he murdered his brother, it says he settled in the land of Nod, which Nod meant wandering. He settled in the place of wandering from God, and he built a city there. And he named it after his son, which is trying to uh, bring permanence to his own name. All of this serves to present Egypt to us as a place of curse, a place of death, a place of separation from God, a place where the nations are happy to make their home. Nations are happy to settle there. Uh, build their cities there. Try to find permanence and satisfaction there. But it's a place from which God wants to redeem His people. But not without opposition. Because if in Egypt we see a picture of Sheol and death, these chapters present in Pharaoh a picture of the serpent. Think about that with me for just a moment. Not to spend too much time on this point, uh, because there are yet more important things than this to see, but it is a fitting capstone to what I just said about Egypt. Um, that Pharaoh pictures the serpent, that, that he pictures the activity of Satan in the world. Uh, so clearly, you, 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 you should hear in this echoes of Genesis 3 where Satan was masquerading as a serpent in the garden. How does Pharaoh represent the serpent? Well, first of all, if you would have it would have been the very first thing, perhaps, that crossed your mind if you had been there and looked at him. Because um, he would have worn a crown, the prominent thing of which was on the front a raised serpent. The, the cobra was the, 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 in ancient Egypt, a symbol of divine authority. And he wore, when I mean, you looked at his face, and he had a raised serpent on his crown. Um, and, and he claimed for himself deity. Ezekiel 29.3 reinforces this claim. Where God says in Ezekiel 29.3, Speak and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon, or serpent, that lies, that lies in the midst of his streams. Remember the bookends of water? that says, my Nile is my own. I made it for myself. 
And God, of course, is rebuking him for that there. Because Exodus presents Pharaoh as a serpent, as doing the work of Satan rather than God, uh, uh, you see that in, in what he does. Not just what he looks like, but what he does. Because what, what does he do here in the first chapter when he fears the Israelites are growing too many? He issues a murderous edict that all Hebrew baby boys born be murdered. Well, that's not only horrifically wicked, it's a personification of Genesis 3.15, where where God said, in His curse on the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise His heel. That, this is that enmity at work. This is that bruising in historical circumstance. But it is, it's more than just a personification of Genesis 3.15. If you were here in the fall and spring, we studied through Revelation. It's a personification in history of Revelation 12. Um, where we saw in Revelation 12 that, that scene of a woman about to give birth. And it says in Revelation 12 that a great dragon... Serpent, personified as Satan, was waiting to devour the baby as soon as he was born. And remember, we said that this image represented all of Satan's efforts throughout the Old Testament history, all the way up to Herod's edict in Jesus' day to murder all the baby boys, to stop the birth of Christ from happening at all. Philip Graham Ryken said, whether he knew it or not, Pharaoh was the seed of the serpent that God had promised would strike at the heel of the woman's seed. By trying to prevent the Savior from ever becoming a man, Pharaoh became an antichrist. So, I want to, that's a fitting capstone to what we saw of, of Egypt itself. But the theme of this, these two chapters do not center on just Egypt as a picture of Sheol or Pharaoh as a, as a picture of the serpent. It's not, it's not here just to highlight how big and how scary our enemy is, but it's here to, 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 to maximize God and his will and his work that we fear him above all else. Because So second, the third, we see in Moses, finally, a picture of the Savior. Think about that with me. I already said the story it, here is interesting in its own right. Um... Under, under the, the Pharaoh's murderous edict, Moses was born, should have died, according to his edict, and his mother did not want to kill him, so she hid him for three months until she couldn't really any longer keep him hidden. So she made a basket ready to float on water, <laughs> and she put Moses in it and put the basket on the Nile River where he was eventually found. We read that by Pharaoh's daughter, when she was down at the river's edge. By the way, by the way just one little interesting tidbit here. Um, there's an artifact in the Cairo Museum uh, of an elongated, I'm not saying, it's older than, they date it to older than Moses, but still it makes an interesting possibility. There's an elongated uh, basket woven out of reeds with the remains of a boy in it. Uh, evidently a primitive coffin, right? It's in, I just take it, it's entirely possible that Moses' mom 
was putting on a funeral ruse, you know, that, uh, that she had made a coffin for her dead son who wasn't dead at all and put it in the river like they were supposed to do, uh, just trying to make it look like the child was dead. Uh, yeah, just trying to make it look like she was obeying the edict. But Pharaoh's daughter finds the basket of the child, names the child Moses, and then through the, the, the help of Moses' sister who was there, arranged for Moses' mother, real mother, to, to nurse the child. Well, then the story skips ahead, what we didn't read, like I said earlier, to an episode where he sees an Egyptian uh, beating one of the Hebrew slaves, and he murdered that Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Uh, and and, and he, he's afterwards, because of that, shunned by Pharaoh. Pharaoh chases him into the wilderness. There he defends uh, the daughters of a Midianite priest, is given one of them in marriage, and he would remain in that wilderness for 40 years until we get to chapter 3, and God confronts him in the burning bush, commissions him to go back to Egypt. Again, this is an exciting story in its own right, but there's so much more to see um, than a superficial reading would allow you to see. What we see on a careful, uh, a careful look at Moses here is not only that God was raising up Moses to be a deliverer of Egypt, uh, of Israel on down the road, but the, the life events of Moses that, that, that I just described, those same things that I just described about Moses' life give us a picture of him as a forerunner in his own life of the same things that would be accomplished in a bigger picture through him later to come. Where do we see this in so many ways? Well, here's some of those ways. Moses was born as a Hebrew, and is, what is his first recorded action in the book of Exodus? Uh, in chapter 2, verse 6, it's crying. It's crying. That, that uh, is, is, is in, in his life, what we will see later, 40 years later in the people of Israel, for example, in chapter 2, verse 23, where their cry goes up to God. So we have Moses crying. You have the people later crying. Moses was put in a basket and laid among the reeds. In uh, reeds in Hebrew is suf, suf. Um, in the Nile, that anticipates a later day when all of the, the, the Israelites would go through the Red Sea, or more properly, the Sea of Reeds, Yam Suf. He comes through the reeds, they go through the Sea of Reeds. Incidentally, the, in Hebrew, the basket that Moses was laid in, in, in the Hebrew, is called an ark. He was laid in an ark, uh, just like Noah's, indicating that God would save Moses through the waters like like. Noah was saved through the waters, and indeed, the later people would be saved through the waters. When Pharaoh's daughter uh, found him, she named him, in verse 10, she named him Moses, and she said, because I drew him out of the water. One commentator said her Hebrew actually wasn't very good because Moses, not to get too deep in the weeds, no pun intended, um, Moses is actually an active participle. Not meaning one who, I, one who was drawn out, but, but one who draws out. One who draws out. So his name itself ends up being prophetic for what God would do through him. He would be the instrument through which God would draw out his people out of Egypt. 
Notice, by the way, in chapter 2, verse 11, the repetition of his people. One day, he went out, when Moses was grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. And then, despite defending that Hebrew, if you look down in verse 14, he goes back to some of the Hebrews, and they the Hebrew people scoff at and scorn Moses. It just echoes later on Jesus coming to his own and his own people did not recognize him. His own people did not receive him. But Moses would then go into the wilderness for how long? Forty years. Right? Just as later the people of Israel would. The the events of Moses' life was a clear forerunner of the salvation that God would accomplish for all the people of Israel through him. Moses is not just a type of Christ. Moses is, is, is a type of the small exodus that, he was about to, that was about to happen through him for all the people of Israel. Certainly Moses was a type of Christ in a lot of ways. But in these two chapters, we see a very important way in which he is. Um, here's how one commentator, Morales, puts it. Part of the point is that the mediator of God's people must first experience the journey for himself for their sakes to lead them along the same path. And that is, that is a truth that is borne out in the New Testament about Jesus. Um, here's just one more example. Hebrew, this is Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. Listen to what it says about Jesus Christ. Since therefore the... This is Hebrews 2, 14 to 18. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Interesting choice of words. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Moses went through in his own life what he would later bring about in all the people of Israel. Yeah, so all of this, yet again, is, as we mentioned last week, just shows the providential hand of God orchestrating every event according to his plan and his purpose. So we've considered, we've considered Egypt, we've considered Pharaoh, we've considered Moses, but we have not yet considered specifically what we see of God in these chapters. So as we come to our last point, think with me about God as a picture of sovereignty. We noted at the very beginning the opening words of this, this book in chapter 1, verse 7, again we read, But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. That theme is repeated again down in chapter 1, verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. And the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. And then when you get to chapter, chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, and, and when you have the Hebrew midwives uh, deceiving the Pharaoh and defying his edict, we read why the Israelites were so fruitful, 
even with more oppression, more multiplication. Why were they so fruitful? It says in those verses, so God dealt well with the midwives and the people and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. I mean, God sovereignly made the people grow. He, he made the people multiply despite Pharaoh's edict. A.W. Pink is always good for a quote. He says, he said, Better might a worm withstand the tread of an elephant than the puny creature resist the Almighty. That's the constant theme of the first division of Exodus. God was already getting glory over Pharaoh just in causing babies to be born left and right. And the chapter ends on this same note. Um, well, I would say not this chapter, this section, chapter 2, verse 23. And it says, chapter 2, verse 23, during those many days, the king of Egypt died. The one who claimed deity for himself died. While the eternal, the true living God lived on. And again, just look at those beautiful last verses. Look at the string of, as the people are, are groaning and crying out under their oppression, look at the string of verbs highlighting the sovereignty of God in verses 24 and 25 of chapter 2. God heard their cry. God remembered His covenant with Abraham. God saw His suffering people. And God knew. And again, this, this final word about God, and God, God knew, that is intentionally meant to echo the first thing we read about this Pharaoh in chapter 1. There came a new king who did not know Joseph. God did. God knew Joseph. God remembered his people. If you ever doubted the sovereignty of God, the book of Exodus will cure you of that. And if the first two chapters teach us anything, it is that despite the the fiercest opposition of Satan in the world, God would provide salvation and he would save his people. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for uh, a beautiful word in, in Exodus chapters 1 and 2. Lord, I pray that um, even if we did read these chapters ahead of time before we came in here, I pray that having thought about these things together, uh, Lord, that uh, we might go back and read them yet again. And see for ourselves uh, how, how your, your sovereign hand was at work in getting glory over um, Pharaoh, even causing babies to be born, causing two Hebrew midwives, Shipra and Pua, to be bold as lions and mock Pharaoh to his face in the fear of God. And how, how you set up this, this, this great and fierce enemy of Egypt and Pharaoh, but then you have, you have a Savior coming from the unlikeliest of places as a picture of Jesus who is to come, who is of no reputation, and yet is the King of the world. Lord, we give you thanks for these things. We, we pray them in Jesus' name. Amen.